1: In 2022 money, it cost 2.6 billion dollars. It has 21 and a half, or 2.15, just a little more than two million square feet. Now, to put in that perspective, it's over two and a half times larger than the second biggest palace in the world, Buckingham Palace as 1788 rooms 257 bathrooms i don't know how those jive together as a banquet hall that seats 5000 a mosque that will seat 1500 air conditioned stables for over 200 polo ponies i don't know why they call them ponies those are full grown horses five swimming pools 110 car garage 564 chandeliers it takes 51,000 light bulbs to keep it lit. 44 stairwells, 18 elevators. What do you think about that? Well, it also is the residence of the prime minister, who is the sultan, who is the defense secretary, who is the finance secretary, who is everything. He is an absolute monarch of great wealth. He has ruled second longest of any monarch in the world, second only to Elizabeth II. He's ruled for 55 years. You know, when I was growing up, I told you this before, we had the family Bible uh, there in our living room. And also on the coffee table, we had a book called Leaves of Gold. And in there is a poem. I'm not going to read the whole poem this morning, but an extract from it by Theodore Tilton from the 19th century that puts all of that in perspective. Once in Persia reigned a king who upon his signet ring graved a maxim true and wise if hell before his eyes, Gave him counsel at a glance, fit for every change and chance. Solemn words, and these are they. Even this shall pass away. Trains of camels through the sand brought him gems from Samarkand. Fleets of galleys through the seas brought him pearls to match with these. But he counted not his gain. Treasures of the mine remain. What is wealth, the king would say, even... This shall pass away. And after a couple of other stanzas, stanzas, Tilton goes on. Towering in the public square, 20 cubits in the air, Rose's statue carved in stone. Then the king, disguised, unknown, stood before his sculptured name, musing meekly. What is fame? Fame is but a slow decay. Even this shall pass away. Struck with palsy, sore and old, and waiting at the gates of gold, said he with his dying breath, Life is done, but what is death? Then in answer to the king, fell a sunbeam on his ring, showing a heavenly ray. Even this shall pass away. You know the text very well. It's not the text for this morning's sermon, but John 14, 2, Jesus told us not to worry and he said, For you see, in my Father's house are many what? Mansions. You see, if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you unto myself, so that where I am, you will be also. Peter wrote about this sort of as an introduction for today's sermon. In the first chapter of First Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, and it is reserved for you in heaven. You have a place in God's house if you follow Jesus Christ, is what Peter was saying. We've been talking about worship for the last couple of months and how it works out not only as we corporately come together, but as we go forth as being really walking with God. We walk as pilgrim priests today. We walk with God on a journey, a pilgrimage, on the way to our heavenly home, to Zion Worship is walking with God. I'm not going to go through all of the summary of all of the messages as I usually do at the beginning of this sermon, but I do want to make reference to one of those. Three weeks ago, we said our most fulfilling and pleasing response, fulfilling for us and pleasing to Him, is to sing anew, to sing with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, and to sing with all creation to bless His holy name. And that's exactly if you were listening, what the, what the Sanctuary Choir just did. O oh Lord, our God, the majesty and glory of your name transcends the earth and fills the heavens. O oh Lord, our God, little children praise you perfectly, and so would we, and so would we. Alleluia, alleluia, the majesty and the glory of your name. Alleluia. Hallelujah! the majesty and the glory of your name. We thank God for his goodness and his mercy and the wonders of his deliverance and his provision for us. And we said last week, we did not only lift his name on high with voice of praise, but we also then go forth to serve him with sacrificial action. And it brings us to the message today. I would sum it up this way. We serve God in worship here and there, As his priests. You see, we help him build this spiritual house that we're going to talk about today, that we are headed toward on pilgrimage. And in the meantime, we offer spiritual sacrifices to him in that house as we go to that house. Would you stand with me for a brief reading of God's word this morning from 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5? And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's be seated. You know, the context of this is, in 1 Peter, by the middle of the first century, the church had experienced opposition, first from the Jews and then by Gentiles. By the middle of the first century, the situation would worsen and Christians were about to face intense and widespread persecution from the Roman government itself. And in this letter, Peter encourages Christians facing those trials in the future to draw strength from their heritage of salvation that imperishable inheritance they have, to live holy and worthy examples, following Christ, submitting to him, and to stand firm with Christ in his suffering as they suffer and as they minister and witness to others. In chapter 1, it talks about the origins of our salvation, that we have been reborn, through Christ's resurrection, so that we have a living hope in Him, and that we're to behave as obedient children. And we'll talk about that tonight. We're all His children. To reject worldly lust, and to be holy as our Father in heaven is holy, and to love one another, and to follow His living word that is the imperishable seed of our rebirth. That summarizes chapter 1. And then we come to chapter 2, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago as the basis of one of our texts three weeks ago, as we focused on the Bible being that which not only guides us, but also nourishes us with that deep need that we have, to meet that deep need we have to have fellowship with God. And we saw there that we are called to grow as children and to reject worldly behavior and consistently to feed on God's Word, and it should guide us in worship as it does here at Gambrel Street. And so it leads into verses 4 through 12. We read 4 and 5 a moment ago, which then takes off from that and tells us that we are to help build and to serve in the spiritual house of worship. It's about building God's house. That's what this text is about. You see, there is an eternal Trinitarian strategy behind this house building. The father is the architect, the contractor, the material supplier, and the chief occupant. The Son of God is the subcontractor. He enlists the workers, he publishes the blueprint, and he builds the building, and he inspects it when it's done. The Holy Spirit is the supervisor. He guides and implements the plan along the way, he equips, he empowers, and he encourages the workers when they are faint in the Texas noonday sun. It's a Trinitarian project. But it's not without our collaboration. You see, it's also a great divine human collaborative effort. For you see, Jesus Christ in his full humanity was by vocation a what? What was he? He was a carpenter. He was a master mason. He was a builder and he was about building the spiritual house of God. And he invited his disciples then to come and follow him and to be the building material to be the living stones that were going to comprise that building. And it's more than a building. It's more than just a house. You see, as we said from John 14, it's the father's house. In my father's house are many mansions, the oikos. But that word is used in other ways in the New Testament. It also means household. It means a place that is prepared for a family. In other words, John 14, Jesus is inviting us someday to live in God's home, his household home. It's also his royal palace, you see. It is the residence and the citadel of the king of all creation. It's more than just a house. It's more than just a home. It's more than just a a royal palace. Far more splendid than that of the Sultan of Brunei. It's the capital of God's kingdom. It's at the heart of the new Jerusalem, the city with foundations whose builder is God. It's a permanent dwelling. It doesn't fade away. You cannot find the the palaces of any of the ancient kings of Babylon or Egypt. All you see is monuments to the death of the Egyptian pharaohs called pyramids. It is a permanent dwelling not made with human hands that is eternal in the heavens. It's an eternal place of worship and fellowship. When we depart here, if we follow Christ, we are promised in 2 Corinthians 5 that we will be present with the Lord that word present literally means to be at home with when we depart here we go to our heavenly home to be with the Lord and there we know from revelation that we will serve him eternally we will gaze upon his visage and see him forever and we will reign with him forever in that eternal home it's that house about which we are speaking today and that building is in progress You see, it's not just there, it's also here. It's not just someday, it is now. It's under construction. The foundation has already been laid in Jesus Christ, and there is no other foundation that is suitable, Paul tells the Corinthians. And God gives us the privilege of inviting us to participate in building His house. Wow. This passage of Scripture tells us two or three things, I think. In verse 4, In this house, Jesus is the living foundation. In verse 5, at the beginning, we are told that we are God's spiritual household. And then at the end of that verse, we are told that we will serve God in worship through spiritual sacrifice. Verse 4 is explained a little bit more by verses 6 through 8, which we did not read. And there's verse 5, there's a commentary on it in verses 9 through 10, and there's a little bit more in verses 11 and 12. So, all together, this block goes from verse 4 through 12. Let's talk about those three points. First of all, Jesus is the living foundation, and coming to him as a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and is precious in the sight of God. You see, coming to him is continuous. It it comes out of verses 1 through 3. We have been feeding on the Word of God as babes. We're told to continue feeding, and as we come to Him, we continue to do that. We continue to feed on the Word of God as we come to Him because we know this. It says, we come to Him as to a living stone. That as to suggests there's something that we anticipate. When we come to the Word of God, we're going to learn something more about Who God is each time we come to it. You know, today, as I preach, you're going to hear many, many things that you've heard before. How many of you have read this text multiple times, and yet we're called to come back, continuously come back, and feed on the Word of God? Because 98% of the things I say to you, you may have heard before, but the 2% is what counts for growth, maybe. And there are many who listen today, perhaps online, who have not read this text. And so we continue to come to the Word of God to proclaim it so that they might hear the Word of God anew. But there's a new discovery that we find in this text. He reveals something more about himself than as he goes into verse number four, which maybe the followers of Christ did not know when Peter wrote this letter. There's a fuller discovery. Oh, they knew that he was living. But they did not know that he was a living stone. They knew that he originated life. In him was life, and that light that light was the life of men. They knew that from the prologue of John. His words were living, written on the heart, not on tablets of stone. They knew that, perhaps. The disciples had heard him in the temple call people to come and to drink from him because he was the living water. They had heard about his sharing. They, they saw him share The bread in John 6 that he was the bread of life they knew these things about the living Lord they knew that he was the life bringer Peter has said that you see who you have been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to a living hope and now they find something new that he is the living cornerstone here explained in verses 6 through 8 he is that living stone which is rejected by men Jesus told his disciples this. On four occasions, he predicted that he would be, he would go to Jerusalem, he would die. But on two of those occasions, he uses this language. He says, I will be rejected and I will be abused by the religious rulers. It's explained in this text a little further in verses 7 and 8. You see, he is the rejected cornerstone. Verse coming out of Psalm 118, which we read it right at the beginning of this worship service. Psalm 118:22 speaks about this cornerstone being rejected. Verse number 8, he is a stumbling block and a rock of offense. A stumbling block to the Jews and an offense and a scandal to the Greek. That comes out of Isaiah, the 8th chapter. You see, those are old passages that they knew well, but they come to it and they read it anew through the lens of what Peter is saying, and he is this living stone that is rejected. In the negative context then, this cornerstone is a stone of judgment. Jesus had spoken about this already. In the parable of the wicked tenants in Matthew 21, and it found also in Mark and Luke, he then comes to the end of that passage And he quotes then this about the cornerstone. This is the cornerstone, you see, that is rejected. And they look at him, and they're offended because they know that he has spoken this about them. You see, what he was saying is, he is the stone by which other stones are tested. He is the choice stone, the one that was selected as a stone of judgment for those who would not believe. There's biblical evidence that He is the chosen stone. John the Baptist and the version in Matthew and Mark, you see in in other versions, it speaks about him being the beloved son. But John the Baptist speaks about him in, in John 1 as being the chosen one. He is the chosen stone. When you look at the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew and Mark speak about him being the beloved son, but Luke Says that he is the chosen one of God. He is the chosen elect one of God that came in this context as a stone of judgment. But he is also the precious stone. He is honored and prized. And here, Peter quotes Isaiah 28, precious and prized and rare and costly. What's the meaning of this in a positive context? He is a living cornerstone. Living cornerstone that is the foundation of a living building that is being erected upon him. And Paul tells us about this from a positive perspective. You know, in Ephesians, we covered this about a month and a half ago in the second chapter of Ephesians, where it's, it, he quotes this text about him being the cornerstone. And he tells the church at Ephesus, You see, what is happening here in a positive way is that cornerstone is laying a foundation for God's household. And it is uniting the body of Jews and Greeks together that follow Christ together in one body upon the apostles and the prophets. And Jesus is that fit cornerstone that joins them together. And it is a growing temple of the Lord, a dwelling of God in his spirit. So in the positive context, it has a negative context, a stone of judgment. In the positive context, it is the foundation upon which the house of God is built, and it has already been laid, so it is in progress. Secondly, from this text, in the beginning of verse number 5, we see that we're God's spiritual household. You also, you see, He's the living stone, but you also are living stones, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. We're, we're living stones. Peter's already said this. You've been made alive again at the beginning of chapter 1. That's why I reviewed that. You've been made alive through the resurrection of Christ to what kind of hope? A living hope. Later in chapter 2, a little bit after this passage, he goes on to say, though we die to ourselves, we then live. We're living. We live to righteousness. We are like the living stone because we are reformed in his image. We are living stones because we have been predestined, Paul tells the Romans, to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Not only predestined, but he tells the Corinthians that we are in the midst now of a transitional process. That the living stone, he doesn't use that language there, but he is, Christ himself is transforming us into the same image that he has from glory to glory. That means that if he's the living stone, we also are living stones. And he tells the Philippians, he gives this promise. Someday, when this body is consigned to the soil and it becomes dust, he will then remake the real body. Our humble body will be brought into conformity with his glory. So there are several passages that echo and reinforce this idea that if he is the living stone and we are in his image, we also are living stones. But we're not tablets of stone. We're not inert. We're not brick and mortar. We're not static. It's organic. You see, these are living stones that are growing and building and are inserted into the house. Then he says he, he says this, you also are living stones. What that means is if we are like him, then we are also what? Going to be the same thing that he was. He was what? rejected, and he was choice and precious. So you are like Christ, living stones. I am a living stone, and like him, we need to know this. When we go out into the world, when he said, as I go to Jerusalem, I will be rejected and abused by the religious leaders, we need to understand, as Jesus warned his disciples, I send you out as sheep among wolves. It is dangerous out there. You're going to be handed over to the courts. You're going to be whipped in the synagogues, he told them, and everyone will hate you because of my name. Well, maybe not everyone hates you, but when you go out there, folks, to proclaim the message of the gospel, there will be people that that will resist the message, and there will be people that don't like it, and so you will be rejected when you carry the message of the gospel to a dark and dying world, but so is Jesus, and we need to be prepared for that, and to deal with it with grace, and love, and mercy. We, too, are choice. We, too, are precious. Uh, The word choice literally means elect. Yes, there is a doctrine of election, not just in Ephesians. It is here. We are elect. Look at verse number 9. We are a, what kind of race does it say? What kind of race does it say in verse number 9? We are a chosen race. We are an elect race. We're chosen to worship Him in that passage. It follows that we are to proclaim His excellencies, the excellencies of the one that called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We're chosen to do that. We're chosen in that passage that follows to be the people of God, chosen before the foundation of the world to be objects of His mercy. And we are chosen in Christ, Ephesians tells us. We have been predestined to be chosen. When it talks about election, I believe it means this. My belief is that Jesus Christ is the elect of God. And because he has redeemed us and he offers us salvation, if we believe in him, we are elect in him. He is the one that then makes us elect. We're precious, just as he is. You see, we have been purchased by what? The precious blood of Jesus Christ. Peter has already said that in chapter 1. We are precious because our faith is precious. He has said this in chapter 1. Our, our faith is like gold, precious gold that is tried by fire. We are precious in the sense that we are honored. He has privileged us. In this passage, in verse number 6, He speaks about honored in the sense of not being put to shame. You see, those of you who believe in him, those of us who believe in him say, you will not be disappointed. That's another way of saying you will not be put to shame. You will be honored. And he then concludes this by saying, that precious value, you see, the preciousness of the value of Christ's sacrifice is for those of you who believe. So you see, we're also living stones like he is who will be rejected, but also precious and chosen. And we're being built up. The word here means to erect or maybe even refurbish a building or a house. And I see two or three aspects to this word in this this, uh, verse number 5. A little bit later in verse number 5, he talks about the nature of the spiritual house. And then he talks about the role of the residents in the spiritual house. And then he talks about the purpose of those that live in the spiritual house. So let's talk about that. This house, the nature of it, he says, is spiritual. You see, he says we're being built up as a spiritual house. Now, that's important, as. He doesn't say you're being built into a spiritual house. That would suggest that, okay, we're a physical house now, but gradually, someday, we're going to become and be built into a spiritual house. No. That's already begun. Right now, if you're a Christ follower... You are being built as a spiritual house. You already are a spiritual house. Now, what he's talking about is the building up of that spiritual house, the growth of that spiritual house, the transformation of that spiritual house. But you're already, and so am I, spiritual houses of God. What does that mean? Well, you know what it means. He told the Corinthians on two occasions in the first letter, each person, each of you who is a follower of Christ is a temple of God. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's spiritual, friends. And here he, he says, he says it, it is more than just individual. It is a community that comes together to build a house. So if you are the temple of God, if you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you come together as living stones, then it comprises the building, which is a spiritual house of God. And it's more than a house. It's more than even a household. It's God's family, as we said a moment ago. You know, when uh, Jesus' family came to him and they were standing outside and he had his disciples at his feet and they said, your, your mother and your brothers were out there. He didn't go out and run and greet them. Oh, he loved them. It was his family. But what did he say? He said, I tell you the truth. Those who obey the Father, those who obey my Father's will, they are my family. They are my brother and my sister and my mother. So you, spoke, you see, he spoke about this house as being a family thing it is a community of faith it's more than just a household he said whoever obeys my father is family you know what that says is it's a household that's united in faith paul says this in ephesians the second chapter it's a household of god in galatians he says it's a household of faith it's a family of faith now have you heard that before where have you heard that before Our pastor emeritus, often, when he speaks about this body of Christ, will speak about coming and joining the what? Family of faith. That's the point of reference. That's the touchstone. You see, here on earth, that family of faith is the church. Here on earth, it is the inaugurated kingdom of God. I believe in that form of inaugurated eschatology. I will say that much about eschatology. I think it's begun, but it's not finished. And he tells Timothy very much the same thing. He says this, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. There are two implications of this, friends, I think. The first is that the church is full of life. We're living stones, and the church is full of life. It's not just a building. This isn't the church. It is a sanctuary into which we come to worship, yes. It's more than just a building. It's more than just an organization. During the week, we have staff that, that, quote, run the business of the church, organization, administration. That's very important. It's a logistical base to which we come, and then we go out to minister. All of that's important, but the church is more than a logistical base and an administrative unit. It is a living organism. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12. And we all bring gifts into that church. And every one of those gifts is important in the living body of Jesus Christ. A second thing that this says is that the kingdom itself is relational. The kingdom is about the relationship of living souls one to another. Look at verses 9 and 10. The language is relational. We are a chosen what? Race. We're a royal priesthood. Those are relational terms. It is a holy nation. We are the people of God. It is a spiritual household. Peter said at the beginning of chapter 1, we have been sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's spiritual in its essence. 1 Corinthians 2 says this, natural man only understands natural things. But you're spiritual. You understand the spiritual things of God because you have the mind of Christ. It is spiritual and it's not carnal. Ultimately, what this means is that we have a spiritual destination to which we're going. you know, that sounds ephemeral. It sounds almost ghostly. It sounds almost like it doesn't exist. I'll remind you that Jesus said, I go to prepare a what? Place for you. It is a place, it is a spiritual place, it is a spiritual condition, but it has substance to it. It has locality, it has substance, it is identifiable and is unimaginable. Spiritual is not less than physical, it is far beyond it. Wow. We're going to be in the presence of Almighty God, who is spirit. We have a hev- heavenly destination, and we are in the process of helping build that as a holy priesthood. And that brings us then to the role. The nature is a spiritual living church. The role is, he says, four. This four means, it introduces a phrase that's subordinate to being a spiritual church. In other words, what is the purpose of the house? What's the purpose of the household? It is to to habitate. It is then to be the place of residence for those that follow God, the holy priesthood. And it is not to be built into a holy priesthood. We already are. Same principle applies. We already are a royal priesthood. We are growing in that aspect. This parallels the phrase found in verse number 9, we are a royal priesthood and a holy nation and you put those together and it is a holy priesthood. This word priesthood is unique. You know, when you do Bible study and when you preach, sometimes we, I do, I get carried away when I find something that's unique or new and I feel like it's really important to say this, you know, this is the only place this is found in the New Testament. You know what I'm talking about. Does that ever happen to you? You find out this really interesting fact, but a lot of times, you know, it's just interesting. It's all it is. But this is interesting and it is meaningful. This word is used only here in the New Testament. And the only place that it is paralleled in Hebrew, and it's a two-word phrase in Hebrew to parallel Then the royal priesthood, is found in Exodus, the 19th chapter. That's significant. It's not just interesting. What that says is, In the Old Testament, in Exodus 19, when it speaks about you are then a kingdom of priests, that parallels over here then the royal priesthood. In other words, we have become the covenant people of God. Israel was God's old covenant people. And Jews today can be part of the new covenant as well. And our prayer is that they would. But the church today, the followers of Christ today that comprise the household of God are the new covenant people of God. Holy in nature, we are priests, sanctified by the Lord, forever cleansed, sanctified unto the Lord, set apart for His service. Sancti- for, sanctified like the Lord, because you're being transformed in character to be like Christ, and sanctified in the world, but not of the world, to be holy examples. It's collective and it's individual. We gather together on worship collect- to worship here. To praise God, to lift up His name, to pray, to read the Scripture, to sing in unison or sometimes in parts. We're living stones fitted into God's corporate household, serving as a united body. And then you know what happens. We go from this logistical base, and we go forth to do the same thing, to follow Jesus. Now follow me here. He's the living stone. We go forth then to be what? Living stones. And what do we do as living stones? We go and integrate ourselves into other organizations, other structures, maybe a broader family, at work, at school. Wherever you are, you are a living stone that plugs into that organization, living the life of Christ, and the organism grows and influences as well in your service of worship from Romans 12. Then finally, we serve God through spiritual sacrifice. Verse 5b. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, this is our purpose as priests, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Spiritual sacrifices, they're spiritual because they're prompted and empowered by the Holy Spirit. They're spiritual because we are divinely inspired and we aspire through a pure conscience to do His will. And it is spiritual because it's not carnal. We reject the lusts of this world, which he says at the beginning of chapter 2 it is a sacrifice a sacrifice is something that surrenders something that is valuable and precious to God an offering totally dedicated to him and the most the purest and ultimate form of sacrifice is life itself that's why the word in Hebrew sacrifice literally means to kill in other words when we present ourselves to Christ we die to self and we give him ourself he gives a couple of examples here as we come near to the end in verses 9 through 12 uh, 9 and 12 some examples of spiritual sacrifice. The first of those is praise. Proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of his darkness into his marvelous light. This is a primary priestly function. And we we do that mostly in corporate worship. We come together and we sing praises. We did it collectively this morning. Praise my soul, the King of heaven. To his feet your tribute bring. ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Evermore his praises sing, Alleluia, Alleluia. We sang that this morning. Praise the everlasting King. There are sacrifices of praise. We're told in Hebrews 16, it doesn't just happen here. We offer sacrifices of praise wherever we go. As we walk with Him, we worship by lifting up sacrifices of praise. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. Through Him, that is Jesus, let us continually, not just once a week, not just twice a week on Sunday, not just three times a week on Sunday, morning, Sunday, evening, and Wednesday, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that give thanks to His name. As we go forth, we worship Him, singing anew. Singing a new song, but singing it again and again. A second example of this sacrifice is conduct. Verse 12 says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may also, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Our conduct brings praise to God, praiseworthy behavior. He doesn't want countless animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, he doesn't want endless liturgy and legalistic works. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He wants us genuinely to walk with him as we worship Him here and as we go forth there, to love mercy, to do justice, and to walk humbly with our God and to do it in an acceptable way through Jesus Christ. Last point. What is it, this worship that we do, that is acceptable through Jesus Christ? What does that mean? Well, the basis of any sacrifice that we make must be founded upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You see, anything that we do Anything that we say, anything that we offer Him, if it is not predicated upon the basis of, if it is not based on the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made, it is meaningless. You see, He made the one-time sacrifice that enables us to enter into the holy place. The only reason that we can come in good conscience and worship here collectively here and enter into this holy place is because of His shed blood. Any other offering that does not take that into account is blasphemous. It is unacceptable in the sight of God. They are mere works that have no credibility. So it must be, our sacrifices must be based on the sacrifice of Christ. It must be done in an attitude of sincere heart and pure conscience and full assurance of faith, the author author of Hebrews says. In other words, when we worship God, we don't do like the pagans, God, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. No, we do it because we love Him and we want to please Him. Acceptable sacrifices are sanctified by the Holy Spirit to advance the gospel. Did you notice in the reading that Olga read this morning from Romans 15? Paul was, what was Paul? He was a rabbi. What else was he? In the the new covenant, he was was an apostle, a missionary. Sure. How does he describe himself here? Were you, were you listening? You, you probably were listening, but, you know, it kind of slips by us. He says this, The grace that was given me from God to be a minister, okay, a servant of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God. You see, he too was a part of the priesthood of the believers. So that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have, found re- no, I have only found in him reason for boasting in the things per- pertaining to God. Paul himself was a priest that strived in every act of sacrifice to be acceptable and pleasing to God through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. What is acceptable to God? Our purpose must be to serve him and to worship him. The author of Hebrews goes on to say, And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased to help others. And then finally, what is acceptable to God? What what really pleases Him? You know, when we offer our sacrifices, we must be completely dependent on Him. His power, His words, His guidance, His approval. You know, it's not the volume. It's not the passion. It's not the excitement. Although sometimes we're louder and sometimes softer. Sometimes we're more passionate. Sometimes not. But those aren't the things that count. It is that we identify with Christ in order to glorify the Father. Listen to what Peter goes on to say in chapter 4 in conclusion. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. When we worship... Are they the utterances of God that are coming out of us? Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Are we doing it in God's strength and power? Are we doing it in our own power? So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. As we minister as priests in God's house and as we go forward to minister wherever we are as living stones, true worship is living spiritual sacrifice that totally, completely relies on God. His inspiration, His power, His words, His direction, and His approval. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, the solid ground, firm through the fiercest drawn storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when strivings cease, my comforter, my all in all. Here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone we serve the living God and we please him only in Christ alone. Let's pray.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Ambrose Street Baptist Church has six church goals, to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.